Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bernil. On this episode, I'm really pleased and happy to bring you the conversation I had with Jamie Green. Jamie is a writer, editor, and essayist. She is the series editor for the Best American Science and Nature Writing, and she is a lecturer at Smith College. She is also the author of the new book, The Possibility of Life. Uh, that's the book we talk about in this conversation. We start by talking about uh, our origins, where we come from, who we are, um, and obviously we talk about where we're going. We talk about why humans ask the big questions of life. Um, we talk. We ask the question, is there life on other planets? Uh, she makes a nice distinction between life and aliveness. We obviously talk about AI and machine learning. We talk about the use of uh, sci-fi films. We spend a little bit of time about uh, UFOs uh, and many other topics. I have to say, I absolutely enjoyed this conversation because really, that's what it is. It's a conversation. It felt, um, I didn't feel like I was interviewing really. It was more just almost like talking to an old friend. She's, she's absolutely wonderful. She's very, very uh, brilliant. She's extremely conversational. And I absolutely loved every minute of this. So I think this conversation is, is just under two hours. Um, and it was an absolute uh, delight to, to have a conversation. As always, you can find this conversation, all of the conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com. It's also on YouTube. So uh, make sure you follow, subscribe, and, and share with others. And uh, now I bring you Jamie Green. I'm here with Jamie Green. Uh, Jamie, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm, uh, I'm excited to talk to you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, of course. You have uh, you have a new book out. It's called uh, The Possibility of Life, Science, Imagination, and Our Quest for Kinship in the Cosmos. And uh, as I was saying before we got on, it's such a good book uh, for, uh, in general, but really for, uh, really to think. Uh, it's a very thought-provoking uh, book, and, and I mean that in the literal sense. I know a lot of people <laughs> say that, but it is something that you'll, you know, read a chapter or you'll read a section and you'll say, wow. That's super interesting. I haven't really considered it that way. You're looking at it from different perspectives. So it's just a it's a it's a mighty little book. I really, really, <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah. So tell listeners um who you are, what your background's in, and uh what you currently do and uh what you're up to. Yeah. Um I I would say I identify as a science writer. I'm also an editor and a teacher. Um, like I I teach writing at Smith College right now and, you know, just sort of for the last five or six years have been freelance and whatever, you know, uh, accumulation or like arrangement of jobs I've, I've put together. Um, I have my MFA in creative nonfiction and in undergrad, I was a theater major. So <laughs> for writing a science book, it's definitely, I'm coming at this as a writer rather than a scientist. You know, I think I have uh, one undergrad astronomy class under my belt. Oh, I took an, a biology class when I was an undergrad also. Mm -hmm. um, and I think of myself as an essayist rather than a journalist, mm. partly because of my education and training. Like I have taken a couple of journalism classes like that I was able to cross register for when I was taking my MFA. Um, but also like in the way that I write, and I don't know if we'll get into this, but in like figuring out how to write this book as 
first is not a scientist because so many books on this topic are written by scientists, Mm -hmm. but also, you know, what you were saying about the books being thought provoking. I definitely, uh, you know, I write from questions rather than like, here's a bunch of information. So, so that's the, the basics on me. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's all really exciting. I, I think that that's necessary and important because I mean, nothing to say about, you know, scientists, you know, or, or physicists or biologists. They're all very, very helpful and necessary, but <laughs> they're not always the best writers um, for a general public and they're not always the best science communicators. And so it is nice to kind of look at these types of, you know, big questions from a writing perspective. So it's a, it's a, it's definitely a, uh, uh, you know, breath of fresh air. So yeah. And it's, it's funny because like in other field, like this book covers a lot of disciplines, but I was coming at it having written a lot about, you know, coming from writing about astronomy. And when you look at the bookshelf, a lot of the best, most prominent writers in like biology are journalists. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got like Carl Zimmer, Ed Young, now Sabrina Imbler. And, you know, I was listening to um, an old episode of your show. Like there are scientists, there's like Jonathan Lossus, who I love. Um, I'm so excited about his new book. And like, you know, I interviewed him for my book, but there's a lot of journalists who are writing the big books about biology, about psychology. Mm -hmm. And then when you go to astronomy and physics, it's all scientists, Mm -hmm. like all of them. It's just really wild. You know, I mean, I, when, when it comes to space, you know, you have like Mary Roach writing packing for Mars or, um, Margaret Lazarus Dean, uh, who wrote leaving orbit, but for the actual science of space and physics, it's like all dudes Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. all scientists and they are fantastic writers, but I just, I find that so curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think, I mean, there are some scientists that probably do the kind of science communication or writing better than others. I'm thinking of maybe Brian Greene. You know, yeah. He's a physicist and he's a good writer. Yeah. You know, Sean Carroll. I mean, he's a pretty mm-hmm. good writer and communicator. You know, there's, there's a few folks out there that do it, but you're right. They're you know, mostly dudes and they're most, they just, they have their like day job of yeah. you know, doing whatever science. And then they do this kind of uh, outside of that. And so, you're, yeah, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. And that is different from maybe other disciplines. And so I don't really know why that is. I don't know if you know why that is, I but it don't. is interesting. <laughs> I think, I think some of it is a fluke. I think some of it is, I was going to say it's like the legacy of Carl Sagan, mm. who was, you know, such an extraordinary writer and science communicator and a researcher. And then you get like Neil deGrasse Tyson trying to follow in his footsteps. Mm-hmm. But you know, in evolutionary biology, you have Stephen Jay Gould, like you have scientists. So I don't know. I think it's for Brian Greene, that to me feels like physics is you you need such a strong background in it to be able to write about it that like kind of makes sense to me mm-hmm, <laughs> that it's like, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. him and Michio Kaku. It's like, yeah, yeah, scientists probably should be. But it all, I think it also overlaps with, I would guess, being a good teacher mm-hmm. because being able to explain the concepts is so challenging, yeah. especially in physics because it's so, you know, math-based and abstract. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, for astronomy and astrobiology, I don't know. It's, it just might, it might be a fluke. Mm-hmm. I really have no idea. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I, I guess uh, I guess one of the things that I'm I'm curious about is when I when I was reading you know, your 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 book, it was you know you have these kind of you know these you know uh, short chapters about uh, different topics, and I guess my question was sometimes I I try to read things as openly and as kind of blank when I go into it. Of course, we don't actually really do that, <laughs> but I, I try to. And you know you have a you know it's origins, planets, animals, people, technology, contact. I was trying to was there like a through line there? Was there a reason why you chose those as opposed to others that were just more interesting or what what was the kind of idea there? Yeah, I mean those it's funny like th- that structure was there basically from the beginning for me. Like it was r- almost like part of the idea for the book. And it really was like if we want to imagine alien life, what are the questions we need to ask. Mm. And so it really all fell into those categories for me. You know, if we want to think about life on other worlds, we need to know how life starts, how it started on earth, how it starts in general. Um, and then origins is sort of a cheat because half of it is also about the origin of our ideas of extraterrestrial life. But that was, that was the one cheat. Um, and then if we want to think about that life, there needs to be somewhere for it to be. So that's planets. And then before we get intelligent aliens, we need life. And and how do you, you know, what's the sort of biology? So that to me is aliens. And then people, be, like it's, it's almost um, not quite chronological, but sort of hierarchical. You know, we get intelligence and then we get technology and then we've got these intelligent, technologically advanced aliens out there who have evolved and lived on a planet and all of that stuff. And then we meet them and that's sort of the culmination. And that also like brings it back to humanity. So I realized pretty late in the writing process that this was basically sort of conceptually inspired by the Drake equation, Mm. which is, you know, one of the foundational concepts of the search for alien life and for SETI, the search for alien, uh, for extraterrestrial intelligence, you know, cause the Drake equation, um, it was, it, it's written like an equation, but it's really, it, it was made as an agenda setting device at one of the earliest SETI meetings, Frank Drake, who's one of the fathers of SETI wrote this equation on a blackboard to basically say, like, if we want to know how many, civilizations might be in the galaxy from whom we could receive signals. Because if you're going to start listening for signals, you want to have a sense that there might be any out there. It's like what factors contribute to the number of signaling civilizations. And he just made a list and he wrote that out as an equation, but it's really like a, you know, just like a a table of contents almost. Mm. Um, And it's things like the rate of star formation, how many stars have planets, how many planets can support life of those planets, what fraction give rise to life, how often is life intelligent, um, when do they develop technology, and how long does does a civilization continue making signals that we could get. So it's really a a parallel project. Mm. And both in the Drake equation and in my table of contents, there are, of course other questions, other factors, gaps, you know, um, like Drake jumps from developing life to life developing intelligence. But there are so many other um, things that need to line up with the life you have before it can develop intelligence. But this was just like what he focused on. And so it was sort of a similar thing for me where it's not, um, you know, it's not comprehensive, 
but it's these are the the big questions and they were the most interesting ones to me too. Mm, yeah. So I guess my question was when early on reading it was okay, we, we have all these big questions, right? Where what does it mean to be human? What's our purpose? What's life? What's other alien or other other uh, sentient life out there? Why do you think it's something about us that makes us wonder these things. So of course, you can say, like, well, you know, we have our evolved brains that you know can do abstraction and we can think about things, which is one answer. But I mean, to be fair, I mean, I, I mean, as far as they may, we don't know. I don't know if any other uh, animals are pondering these questions or things. They might be, but um, well, yeah, we but I feel this... like we just like we don't know if animals ponder. Right. <laughs> so right, before we're yeah. wondering if they're pondering this question, yeah. it's like, do they ponder at all? Exactly. Yeah, but so. You know, we can't know that at least for now. But why? Why do you think this is uh, animating for us? We've been thinking about this since, I mean, at least you know, since um, you know, thousands of years since at least the Greeks. I mean, maybe before that. Um, I would say, yeah, probably even before that, based on you know how we have understanding of like you know cave paintings, and they were wondering about certain things and detailing history. Why do you think this is a, a question we ask as humans? Well, I mean, if if we're going all the way back through, you know, antiquity and beyond and looking at you know, cave paintings and whatever, then you can see it as an outgrowth of the human tendency to try to understand ourselves in some sort of bigger context. You know, originally, maybe that's the spirit world and animism, and then it's religion, and then it's science. And, you know... um, the Enlightenment and all of that, if we sort of narrow down into Western culture, we, as as sort of religion moves out of being this dominant worldview and becomes like, you know, your personal spirituality rather than determining how science works and how society is structured and all of that, we lose that sense of meaningful context. You know, we understood humanity as being central to God's concern. And until Copernicus, we understood humanity as being literally the center of the universe. And I really think that Copernicus and Galileo together, I say, I think that I'm not the first person to say that. (laughs) Did you know these guys were really important? Um, But that together they, um, really destabilized our understanding of our place in the universe because Copernicus said, we're not the center of the universe. The solar system is not the center. Like we're just another, well, Copernicus said, we're not the center of the solar system. And then Galileo showed we're not the only planet. It was by looking at like Venus through a more advanced telescope that he was able to see that it had phases, which revealed that it was a sphere from which you extrapolate that Venus, Jupiter, Saturn, all the planets that we could see with the naked eye were not just points of light. They weren't just stars that moved differently from the other stars. They were planets and they were worlds. And so then we are not special. We are not the only world. We, But that also opens up the possibility that like, okay, if there are other worlds, just like Earth is a world, and they have the same materials, because why wouldn't they be made of the same thing? Because Copernicus told us we're not special. Um, then it was an easy next step to say that it also has whatever the the spark of life is, the the vital force that animates matter into life on Earth. Again, if you're taking... 
God out of the dominant role in things. It's like, well, it's just the nature of matter. So we have this, this opening in a new worldview that creates space for all of these other worlds of beings. And then we also have this vacuum that needs to be filled in terms of, you know, where do we fit in to the bigger picture? But you also get, you still have the legacy of like Aristotle saying that humans are different from animals. So we're not finding ourselves context, contextually, we're not finding kinship with nature, with, um, you know, other beings on earth. We're like, okay, they're all the animals and we are different because we wonder, because we, you know, we, we still have that sort of religious baggage. Um, and so then we start feeling alone <laughs> and then we, have no one to connect to, no one to compare ourselves to, no way to... So like Copernicus said, we're not central, we're not special. But then we're like, okay, like we need other examples in order to understand ourselves. You know, are we average? Are we especially smart or dumb or creative or dull? Um you know, it's it's like all the aliens on Star Trek, right? We, so we've got the very logical ones and the very warlike ones and the very greedy ones. And of course, humans are just like the sort of average ones. But that's why there's this huge trope in sci-fi of the alien saying to the human, here is what humans are like. We are, we are so hungry for that outside perspective to say, here's what you're like. And not just like you are flawed, you are good, you're a sinner, you're forgiven, but like, here's what makes you, humanity humanity. Mm-hmm. And, and we need like a bigger context within which to situate ourselves. Yeah, there's something, I forget where it is in the book, but I think you mentioned that like, what, what would it be like <clears throat> to have the perspective of another alien life looking at humans you know, and, and what, what would they say about humans, right? Yeah. There's different types. There's, you know, types meaning, you know, we're all one species, if you will. So not different humans, but, you know, different, you know, there's tall and short ones and things like that, but you're all the same kind of species. Um, they wouldn't break things down probably in the way that we do. Um, right. They would have like a wider view. They would say like, oh, the thing that, and so like in, in some sci-fi, it's that humans are particularly imaginative, that we're a very creative species. In others, it's that, um, I think in Contact, the alien says that humans care a lot about love and have a lot of dreams. Mm-hmm. In Octavia Butler's Dawn, the aliens look at humans and actually all life on Earth and say that we're very hierarchical. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I feel like there's another... Something even like worse than hierarchical that they that they call us, you know, whereas they aren't sort of um, as competitive with each other, you know, are always jostling for for rank. So, yeah, it's just like getting that outside perspective, which is funny. Like when I was like a teenager and in my early 20s, there were a couple times where I would meet someone like a, a friend in college or a summer program, you know. And we, I think we were saying before, you know, no, I said that I was a theater major in undergrad. So you get a lot of like um, over dramatic, intense people. Right. And so they, you know, you'd be like sitting around and one of them would say like, I get you. I know what your deal is. And then I would just be like, yes, tell me. Like, it's sort of like why we love um, personality tests or horoscopes. Right. It's something that puts 
everything about you makes sense. It's like, oh, that's why I'm the way I am because I'm a Sagittarius with Capricorn rising. Like now everything fits together or, oh, I'm an INFJ. Like, yes, this makes all these or even like getting a mental health diagnosis. Like, oh, I thought I was just like a lazy asshole, mm-hmm. but I have ADHD. And mm-hmm. it's such a relief to see yourself come into focus that way. And I think that we sort of, we want that for all of humanity because also we want we want it to be hopeful. Mm-hmm. We want them to say like, you are struggling, but you can get through. It's something that I remember from A Wrinkle in Time, which is like, you know, one of my most formative early reads, um, that Meg is told that the earth, that there are um, dark worlds Mm -hmm. and that the earth is shadowed, that Mm -hmm. the earth is fighting. Mm -hmm. And I think that we find that, especially because we do see so much struggle. We, you know, for the last hundred years have seen ourselves, uh, sort of in these make or break moments for the survival and well-being of humanity and of the world, whether it's fascism or nuclear war or climate change or capitalism. So the idea of someone who's a little more evolved, a little more advanced to look at us and say, you're not a dark world, you're a shadowed world, you're fighting the darkness or like, here are the strengths that I see in you that are going, that you can use to fight through. And that the idea that there is a way to fight through. Yeah. It's interesting. You, you, you gave a lot of sci-fi examples and I, and I always find it interesting. <laughs> well, I, I love sci-fi. Sci-fi is great. You do it in the book too. It's great. Um, it's always, we have these, these ways of making other alien uh, species they always still feel, I don't know, like they fit into the trope, you know, the little green mm-hmm. men or whatever. Um, there was, there was one, there was one film. I don't want to give the ending away in case people want to see it. Cause I should, but it was called um, Europa report. I, don't know if you've oh, seen I haven't this. seen that. No, it's really good. It's really good. Um, it's actually well done for like the budget it has and things like that. And it's, it's very like kind of adult in some ways. Like it's very like, Kind of like the the film Moon. You ever seen Moon? Uh, it's a no, film. It's all, <laughs> you're it's hitting also, all the spots I haven't seen. <laughs> it's really good. It's it's good. It's very like. Wait, is Moon the one that's um? It's just one guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Where he's just like on the mm-hmm. moon. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's very kind of you know thoughtful and like a little slow pace. It's not like all the like you know blow up stuff like me. Sort of like, like in the same vein as Arrival stylistically. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah although. Yes, yes, it's more okay. in that that world of thing. Like but, serious, thoughtful. Yeah, they get to, they get to. Um, Europa is one of the moons. Jupiter, Jupiter's moons, right? Jupiter. Oh, I'm. T- I can never remember which moons are which. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it's Jupiter. I, I just to get around that. it. I always say outer solar system moons. <laughs> I can never. <laughs> there's so many of there's them. There's so many. I think it's one of Jupiter's. It could be wrong. Okay. It doesn't matter. But they. They get there and they they want to see what's there or whatever. And the way the movie ends is really cool because it basically takes, uh, it kind of flips what we think about like alien life on its head. It's almost mm-hmm. like it's like the it's like the realism of um, the Martian. Yeah, right? where it's just like okay, like could you grow potatoes on Mars? Yeah. Like could you like you know? It's like that kind of. It's like. I think most people have said like there's a lot of that's the closest to like being realistic as it is. There's yeah. still some like 
you know, things you have to kind of like do take some liberties on. But it's interesting how we always think about alien species or or something that's not human in a way in another another place as having they all kind of lump into this same kind of heuristic of sorts. And kind of what you're saying, I wonder if I mean I think I in theory would be there would be just totally different ways of constructing life, right? I mean in theory. And I mean like, we that would have to be the case. But it doesn't have to be the case. And that's what's so interesting is like it it, it could be. It could or be, yeah. it could be that the uh paths that life has taken on Earth and the sort of big picture, broad strokes of it is not just how life happened to evolve on Earth, but is actually like the ideal way for life to function in general. It's it like it it's comes back to the question of convergent evolution, which I talk about in the animals chapter that ended up being basically essentially about convergent evolution because it's mm-hmm. a fundamental, like that's the scientific question underneath the aesthetic or narrative question of should the aliens look like alternate versions of earth life? Like would an alien planet have plants and animals? Um, would Aliens, you know, you get aliens that are lizard people or bug people or dinosaur people. The idea that, um, you know, a different lineage was the one that that attained intelligence or you see like the same niches filled out. You know, is there something horse like and something bird like and whatever? Or would it be completely incomprehensibly different? Because and, and in order to answer those questions, you have to sort of decide intentionally or not do you think that convergence is the rule in evolution or is it the exception the idea being that like on earth we see examples of distantly related organisms independently evolving some of the same traits Mm -hmm. you know um wings on birds and bats um the my favorite example is the anatomy of the human eye and the octopus eye you know lensed eyes have because that's so complex also the shape of the body shape of dolphins and whale um not dolphins and whales because they are related (laughs) dolphins and sharks you know um and there are so many examples of this. And I mean, you've talked to Jonathan Lossus, like his book is all about that and is all about how we don't know if this is just noticeable flukes or if this is the fundamental way that evolution works. And life on another world would be 0% related to life on earth. So like even dolphins and sharks or humans and octopuses are eventually you go far enough back and they're related and we share, you know, the same chemistry, the same biochemistry, things like that. Um, So life on another planet, you know, doesn't even start in the same place as life on earth, but it's totally possible that like, what works really well and allows life to continue to develop and evolve is one bacteria figuring out how to turn starlight into energy. And maybe chlorophyll is the best at doing that. And the bacterium or bacterium equivalent that stumbles upon chlorophyll is going to be the one that is successful because that is so advantageous, you know, 
Whereas like us having five fingers, there's no reason that we need to have five fingers or four fingers, but you can make an argument that having the head on top of your body and walking upright is advantageous or that any multicellular organism that, that grows by cell division could, would very likely be bilaterally symmetrical and have, you know, so there is a lot of scientific logic, but underneath that all are big unknowns about how the universe works, whether it's biology or physics or, or whatever. And so like, it could be that life, like, it's not ridiculous when sci-fi imagines worlds that parallel life on earth a lot, that have green plants, that have animals, Mm -hmm. that have, I mean, in Jonathan's book, he goes through the arguments for humanoid intelligent beings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I really, really don't know. And I, I think that that's like one of the biggest open questions to me. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think it's wrong to imagine alien life converging with life on Earth. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that because I think of I think of it. I mean, there's two there's two lines of thought I have on this. One is there's that whole like Goldilocks zone, right? Where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, like. You know, if you go to another solar system and um, and you get um, you get a, a star or two stars at the center of it, let's say center center of it, and there's <laughs> enough uh, and there's planets that are orbiting that that star, that sun or suns, <clears throat> and it's enough distance away where you know in you know for the most part the center of the that planet is where you could have the possibility for life etc and it's you know so it's very almost kind of uh analogous to how earth is there's a star mm-hmm. we're 93 million miles away it's the right zone for the potential for life etc cetera, etc cetera, etc cetera. my 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 guess would be yes if i mean <laughs> I mean, this at, at the very least, this universe. If you want to do the multiverse, you know, thing, yeah, we can't. <laughs> we got to close that door. <laughs> if you want to say, at the very least, this universe, if there's at least one planet that has the possibility to do this, uh, you would think that there is that possibility in other systems. I mean, that, that would be like, the uh, assumption, right? Well, you have to you have to base that in science. And it's really hard because we only have one example. And so we don't know if we are on this weird fluke planet or if we are on a totally average planet. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. My, to me, the most informative way to extrapolate then is looking at the timeline of the evolution of life on Earth and the emergence yep. of life. You know, mm-hmm. you sort of think about... Um, like prebiotic chemistry on earth, like rolling the dice a bunch of times until something clicks and turns into life. And we now know that it's very easy to have water on a planet. Yeah. That was not always known. We now know that, um, organic molecules, I mean, organic in terms of carbon based, not in terms of being part of life. Mm -hmm. They're just all around the universe. There's like precursors of amino acids hanging out in intergalactic space or interstellar space. So we don't have to worry that much about it, but we still have to worry about these sort of self-sustaining chemical systems getting started. Yeah. So on earth, we know that life arose just about as soon as conditions allowed, like in geologic time. That tells me that you don't have to roll the dice many times, that it's it's easy, it's cheap. You know, that simple life 
it's possible that we are on a fluke planet where the first time we rolled the dice, we got whatever the ideal <laughs> roll of the dice is. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, uh, if you just sort of assume that, like, if we're on a planet of average difficulty with a, with a non-loaded die, you roll the dice and it happened pretty quickly, right? So that tells me that it's pretty easy for life to arise. Then, so, so, but that life was simple cells. It was single celled organisms that not only were single celled, but um, there were bacteria and archaea that don't have any internal structure. So they don't have a cell nucleus. They don't have all the organelles that you learned about in high school biology, none of that. And these cells are very chemically innovative, but they're not structurally innovative. They are just no offense to them, little blobs. <laughs> to take the step from simple structure to complex structure, to cells with nuclei and mitochondria and Golgi apparatus or whatever, endoplasmic reticulum, that's my favorite. I never remember what it does, but it just sounds pretty. Um, <laughs> that took 2 billion years, billion with a B. And that to me is a lot of sitting there rolling the dice and mm -hmm. getting snake eyes, snake eyes, snake eyes, you know, <laughs> um, or just not, you know, not getting the D20, not getting a critical mm -hmm. hit if we're going to put it in D&D terms. Um, I, I, in my head, I shifted from a pair of six-sided die to a D20 <laughs> for some reason. I was following you though. I was following where you Okay, yeah. It's like a really, really, really high... Um, <laughs> not a save anyway i've never dm'd but um <laughs> so two billion years for that to happen and right. then as i get into in the book like the way that that happens seems to have possibly been kind of a fluke so but people don't want to believe that though no no people don't want we to believe that and i always be feel bad <laughs> Or could or we, we could but be. that's the thing. It's like when you say like there are so many planets and so many stars, there must be other life on those worlds. That's not true. Like we feel that. And I remember when the JWST, the first images came out and we saw the deep field, which oh, like yeah. puts the Hubble deep field to shame. It's just yeah. all these galaxies. They're yeah. so ancient. And I remember people were, you know, sharing them on social media and saying like, Look at this. How could we possibly be alone? And I was like, let me tell you how. <laughs> there are so many ways we could be alone because we don't know. We, we do not know if the... Evol I, so my hunch is that simple life arose so quickly on Earth. There's probably a lot of planets of bacteria, a lot of planets of goo, of sludge, of blobs. Um, but... The emergence of complex cells required one of those simple early cells to gobble up the other, not to eat it, but to like have it come live inside it in what's called endosymbiosis. And that gave rise to mitochondria, which were like the first organelles inside our cells, which, which are the powerhouse of the cell. And, um, one theory goes, then they gave cells more energy so that they could sort of afford to develop all of this complexity. What if, and it was one mitochondria, one pair gobbled up because mitochondria have their own genome and we can see that it's all, it all traces back to one. That sounds like a real fluke to me. And, um, 
you know, we can choose to say, no, it, it must not be a fluke. I'm, you know, uh, there must, there's so many other planets. There must be other life. Or we can say, wow, that makes life really special and wonderful. And maybe with enough other planets and enough billions of years, there were other similar goblings. Um, but I, th- I think that when we look at the vastness of the cosmos and we say, surely we must not be alone. That is absolutely coming out of our desires and not mm-hmm. scientific fact because we don't have the science to tell us either way. No, not at this point. No, I mean, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about this. That's why, again, your book was great. Cause I was <laughs> like, oh, I started, started thinking more about this. Um, I mean, I can I can see arguments for both. Like, yeah, it's a fluke, and it just is, and here we are, and it, it does make it really special. Or there's like, you know, millions of other planets that have living, you know, uh, organisms, whatever that looks like, that are so beyond our imagination that, you know, who knows? And will we ever know them? Maybe not. Maybe we will. But <clears throat> I think all of that said, I mean, there's there's a lot of deeper things you can get from that. But I guess the the one question here is. So I guess what does what is what is how do how do we understand what life is and then what it means to be human? I mean yeah. those are the like, two questions, right? Right. And like, you know, I just went on this small rant about how we have no reason to think that life is abundant in the universe. I want to make it clear that for anyone listening, that that's not what the book is about. Like there is a book published in 1990 called Rare Earth. And if you want to read all the arguments why complex life might be rare, (laughs) it's all in there. And every single one of those arguments has also been argued against Mm -hmm. in the decades since that book has come out. Because this, we don't have an answer. We just have different ways of interpreting the data that we have from this one example. And so I like explicitly in the book avoid this conversation about odds and likelihood because while it's like fun to get heated and argue about it, which is definitely <laughs> a trap I fall into. And, and especially, um, like I felt you're, you're, you're Sagittarius, right? What was it? Sagittarius? No, what was it I am Sagittarius, but it's not, it's because I'm Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> That's my little identity box where I'm like, Oh, this all makes sense. Um, <laughs> Um, but, uh, in like, I talk about odds and probability a little in the intro and a little in the epilogue, but I think that that's fun to debate, but we don't gain any knowledge through that. We don't Mm -hmm. gain any deeper understanding of any of this. We just get to, um, you know, relive our high school debate glory days, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. hypothetically. Um, (laughs) so, so the book is much more about imagining the possibilities and looking at the scientific questions that consciously or not directly or not inform those imaginings so that we can see like, here are the different ways that we imagine the possibilities of evolution. What does that teach us about evolution and how does that make us feel? Like it's all, every chapter is like, has an implicit, and how does that make you feel? (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not in the therapy way, but in like making space for an emotional experience. And so if I say like, we could very well be the only complex life in the galaxy. It's not because I'm trying to scare you or make you depressed. It's because I think it's really interesting to think about why does it feel important that we not be alone? Mm 
And how would that change how we, like, the meaning of life? So that wasn't answering your question. That was like me (laughs) caveating a lot. Um, And now I have forgotten what the question was. I was asking about what is life and what does it mean Mm. to be human? But but yeah. I was just gonna I was just gonna say that that last point that you made though it's kind of like when 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 people kind of you know kind of say like they don't they don't uh, you know they may believe in an afterlife or whatever and then they they kind of get to that point in their life where they're like you know what I want to believe that I'd like to believe that maybe maybe not but you know probably not and and it and then you get to that point of like well if I only have let's say. 80, 85 years on this planet, well, shit, I got to really take care of that and really value every second because it's a blink and it's over. And that that's a different way. I, I really think that's that worldview is, is very different in how you live your life day to day than if you're like, well, I'm just going to get to the pearly gates or I'm going to get to, you know, whatever, you know, this is kind of in between <laughs> or you're going to come back as something else or whatever your view is. That's, there's, there's just a different way of living your life. Personally, that's, I think there's a different way of living your life when you think that way. So it's kind of yeah. the same lines. Yeah, saying. no, totally. And like, you know, I said, I like to argue because I'm Jewish. That is a cultural thing for me. And like when I was a teenager, I remember thinking like, that I didn't like the idea of a God who cared if I believed in him. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, any God who's out there should not care if I believe. And then I was like, well, then it doesn't matter if I believe and I'm just going to go about living my life. And it, it's that similar thing of like, if this is the situation, what does that mean? And it just sort of brings you to a different worldview. Um, so what is life? Yeah. Was your question. Yeah, right. Uh, we don't know. And that's actually like one of one of my favorite ideas that I encountered researching the book, because um, I came into this having written and studied a little bit in my own way about astronomy, exoplanets, the search for life and all that. But biology and the origin of life were pretty new to me as a as a writer, you know, beyond high school and all that. Um and learning about the study of the origin of life, it's a fascinating field. It's a very contentious field. There's so many open questions about how life arises, how life arose on earth, what are the necessary conditions, what comes first, you know. But underneath all that is this question of what is life? And... um we don't have a good answer. We obviously on earth feel like we know it when we see it, but then someone brings up viruses and you're like, Ooh, I don't know. Um, you know, we all think we know it when we see it until I'm like, what about viruses or anyone asks that. Um, and for, for decades, scientists have struggled to come up with a clear definition for life because no matter what definition you come up with, there are always exceptions and counterexamples where either you have a definition mm-hmm. and things that are not alive, like fire, meet all the criteria. Right. You have a different definition and like mules and dormant seeds don't fit, but we're like, no, those are alive. One of the... or the reason that all of these definitions fail is because definitions are for, they tell us what words mean. They don't tell us what something fundamentally is. And so, you know, there's an argument coming out of philosophy of science and some 
from some scientists that what we really need is a theory of life. Yes. Like a physics of life, you know, that, um, in order to understand gravity, we didn't need a definition that says gravity is the force that holds matter together, right? We needed a theory that fundamentally explains what it is and can be used to sort of, um, can be validated by observation. And so we had Newton and then we had Einstein, you know, showing that gravity is the curvature of space time, which changes how we understand the universe. And, um, in terms of chemistry, you know, if if in the 1600s you had asked someone to define water, they would say, well, it's a, a colorless, odorless, drinkable liquid, except there's lots of colorless, odorless liquids that will kill you immediately. <laughs> and there is muddy water and brackish water and, and seawater, which are all still water, we know. But like, you know... And the reason it didn't work is because we needed a molecular theory to help us say that water is H2O. Mm -hmm. And that's not a definition. Mm -hmm. That's a a new thing. Yeah, 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 exactly. And we don't have that for life. Yeah, I mean, I I actually agree with you 100% here. I I think that that's all true. And I think that that is extremely difficult. Mm. Um, Because... You start talking about sentience, maybe consciousness, maybe intelligence. It's all these all these things that we. I I still think we don't. I mean, we're just barely scratching the surface and and kind of putting our 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 thumb on it a little bit, but we don't really get it all. Oh yeah, I mean, and when I'm saying a theory of life, I mean just like the basics. You know, like when does matter cross that line from being um, ruled by physics to ruled by this other thing that we haven't figured out but yeah oh my like sentience it's just it's um we don't know and part of the scientific reason that we're so desperate for knowledge of life elsewhere is to have more than one data point Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to have anything that we could extrapolate about that we could compare triangulate you know like working with one data point is is very hard in science you get bad conclusions Mm -hmm. well and i think it has implications for um ethics i guess or morals Mm -hmm. or you know and again people can debate those types of things as well but you know i mean don't we still have this conversation this debate you know about you know where does life begin and uh you know when you can you know, terminate, you know, a fetus or, or not, or, you know, all these things, people get very animated about these things on both sides. And, and I think that there's a whole other element of this, of having a theory and a framework and, and, and conceptualizing it in a way that is not dependent on believing it or not. Right. Where it's mm-hmm. just, well, that's your belief. And that's, this right. is my belief. It need you know, people, well, in one aspect, people can not believe gravity exists, but if you go jump off a building and be like, <laughs> you'll find out very quickly. We just don't have that for life. And I think that's where we get kind of stuck in some of these debates about, um, you know, obviously abortion and or uh, end of life stuff, or, you know, we have, we put a, put a lot. And I think, I think the charitable view of that is well, if we're the only planet, because we're a fluke, right? <laughs> right? And if we're not going anywhere when we die, and, and it, then just the stakes are high. It's, yeah. it's, 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 you know, you only get the first draft. You don't get Although, to keep editing. I mean, even if there are 
other inhabited worlds. There's no guarantee that we're going to make contact with them. And if we did, we would probably not be able to hold a conversation. It could be a hundred or 200 years each transmission. Um, so we are, no one is coming to save us. We are still in effect alone, but I will say, um, Going back to what you were saying about abortion and end of life, I think that is less about the theory of life and understanding what life is, and that's more about aliveness. Okay, you know, um, like, um, so life is a a dead body. A dead human body is still the product of life. Similarly, um, there's a researcher I talked to who wanna, she, will be like zooming and she'll pick up her cell phone. And the cell phone is not alive, but a cell phone would not exist without life. Uh-huh. But um, things as complex as a cell phone, a backpack, a mug don't exist without life because life um, is able to hold um, information. Life in self-replicating and in creating things within the, the universe um, Life makes things that require more memory and more information than could happen without life. This is one way of thinking about life, that it's about complexity and information. Um, but like the steps required to make a cell phone, I don't care how many times you, you know, do the, the, um, quantum physics equivalent of having monkeys typing on keyboards. Like practically mm-hmm. a cell phone is not going to pop out of the quantum vacuum. Mm-hmm. Like, sure, theoretically, but like that doesn't happen. I don't ever fall through my chair because all the molecules line up, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, even though a corpse is not alive, it is still exists because of life, right? Oh, so there's yeah. life as mm-hmm. a phenomenon versus the state of being alive or dead. Just like a rock is not dead, a rock is not life, mm-hmm. a rock, you know, whereas a corpse is life but is not alive gotcha gotcha so so i just i i want to point out that that um debates about end of life care and abortion when they're framed in terms of the line between the line of life it's not about life and not life it's a different thing and of course i mean the abortion debate i think is much more about bodily autonomy like mm-hmm. where we're just thinking, I just, I just got it. I can't, I can't let us listen, be talking listen. about abortion as a, que- I just, I'm, I know, I'm, I know. I'm, I'm Preaching to the this. choir, yes, I hope, but I just, yes. I can't oh, yes. let a conversation oh, yes. about abortion be about where does life begin when it's really about bodily autonomy and, um, yes. Other bad shit. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm fully, fully on this side. Actually. I'm, I'm very much on this side. Actually. I, I've thought I've had lots of conversations here on the podcast and then, and then, you know, personally and things like that. And, when I have these, I mean, I understand the the pro life, pro life, uh, uh, you know, arguments, but um, I find myself always very pro choice at the end of it. <laughs> well, I think those arguments are also disingenuous. Like, certainly, like you certainly. know, there are definitely people who are moved to weep at the thought of aborted fetuses, but the people who are teaching them those feelings, like this, it's yeah. about control. And similarly, like. You can't force me to give you a kidney mm-hmm. and you can't force people to be pregnant. You shouldn't mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that's, that's what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> donate to your local abortion fund. <laughs> Full agreement with you. But, but I guess in terms, so I like the distinction between life and aliveness that, that makes sense. But I guess when we're trying to say then 
it, so that's a, I think that question, the, the whole, you know, what is life and how are we trying to understand it? But there's two things that come about that, which are sort of connected is, you know, okay, what does it mean to be uh, human, right? Mm. So obviously there's uh, life for, you know, uh, unicellular, multicellular organisms. Um, and then you can scale that all the way up to like, you know, yes, like, you know, other primates and other mammals and other, you know, that's fine. But the human thing is is different, and people always focus on you know the brain thing, which I feel is, I get it, but it is a little parochial in some ways. Um, but then there's this other aspect, which is in understanding aliveness, life, humanity. We're having a interesting conversation, more or less, about artificial intelligence. Um, <laughs> And what that is, you know, because someone someone gets on a, you know, a, a talking with a Bing bot that says like, hey, I, I want to be alive. I feel like that. I mean, it's a very strange thing. And I don't have any, 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 any really thoughts on it. I mean, I'm just kind of observing. I'm, I'm in observing mode. Yeah. Right? Everyone's got an opinion. I have, I have thoughts on the Bing bot. I have thoughts on that. Oh, do you? Okay. Yeah. But, but. Oh, yeah, I do. Um, so I've I've actually lately been like um making it a deliberate choice to refer to all of these things, chat GPT, the Bing bot, whatever, um, mm. as machine learning instead of AI, because That's I think so calling fair. them artificial intelligence mm -hmm. is um playing into the hands of what people in tech want. Mm -hmm. yeah, you yeah. know? That's fair. Um I don't mean for reasons of like social control, but it's like they want it to seem like they've done something cool and impressive. And what they've done is made uh, very clever plagiarism machines. Mm -hmm. And the Bing bot feels like it has a sentience there because it was programmed to talk in first person. Right, right. right. It was programmed to put an eye into the sentences that it was scraping and reconstituting. And, uh, you know, I, I liken it to putting a hat and a wig on your computer and then saying like, oh my God, it looks like a person. It's like, you put the hat on it. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's my thing about AI. And I think it's really, um, and I write about it in the book because I was so surprised how often I would talk to a researcher, including a mentor of mine, people who are, are very like, I was surprised to hear them say that when I said, what do you think is out there in terms of aliens? They would say, if there are advanced aliens out there, I think they are machines and that they have either transcended by. Yeah. Either that they have. I actually think the opposite. Well, so here's their thinking. There, there are a couple um, reasons for thinking this. One is that um, machines will replace biology either um violently <laughs> or um we terminator style <laughs> right or we will you know upload our consciousness mm -hmm. and sort of transcend our biology and mm -hmm. become ever evolving ever improving immortal whatever whatever mm -hmm. or the idea is that if we're talking about who is out in space that machinery is much better at space travel than biology. It doesn't get hungry. It doesn't get motion sick. It doesn't get radiation poisoning. Mm -hmm. It doesn't need protection. So maybe the humans, or sorry, the biology, the biological life is hanging out on their planet, but whoever we're going to meet out in space will be a machine emissary. But this also ties into the idea of the singularity and the idea that um, 
sooner or later, and everyone always says sooner, we are going to hit a point with AI or um, you know, human augmentation, some sort of computing power threshold beyond which human society either accelerates at an incomprehensible pace or we like move into something incomprehensible that we can't imagine. Um, and so I associate that kind of thinking with like shitty tech bros, you know, and yeah. someone I spoke to for the book pointed out this really fantastic insight that, of course, Elon Musk is scared of the singularity because the only thing he can imagine being more powerful than him is his creation, the idea of technology. Um and the singularity is always, no matter when you're talking, it's like it's 20, 25 years away, right? It's like it's just around the corner. Um, but it's not just smarmy tech bros who are talking about this. Like the, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, you know, it's, the, every was, week, every month, it's more and more places and outlets are talking more about these types of themes. Right. And I think part of that is that the the machine learning products that we're seeing right now, like especially language models, we, you were talking about what does it mean to be human? Language is one of the defining features of humanity. Yeah. You know, no other animal, as far as we can see, and this seems kind of solid right now, at least, has language such as we consider it. They communicate, but they don't seem to have language. Um, and Citation folks, you don't need to email me. I know that this is a little contentious, but in terms of what we have deciphered and what we understand right now. Mm-hmm. And so to see what seems like a machine using language, that is intelligence to us. Yeah. But like I said, it's like it's a very clever um plagiarism remix machine and also sometimes (laughs) we're like oh my god the language model said something novel that was not programmed into it well the uh mid journey will generate hands with 11 fingers and we don't say oh it has generated a novel image of a hand we say oh that's fucked up but because it's phrased in grammatical language it feels like intelligence because that's what intelligence feels like to us Mm -hmm. um that's a good point. So, I, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's a good point. I, I, I definitely agree with you on that. I'm going to feel like a real asshole when the Matrix happens in 10 years, but... Um, <laughs> that's all right, though. That's okay. <laughs> but that's that's the where I'm staking my claim. Yeah, and I, I would say, I, kind of on that, too, is that I think that there's a lot about the self or personhood or you individually that needs, and, and how we know it, so I'm going to say needs, I'm tentatively but (laughs) needs the body i mean it's not just we upload our consciousness to a machine and that's you i think that there's i don't know what it is and i don't think it's just your sensorium and that but i think there's something about the body that is i mean there's no magic in the body i'm not putting i'm not overemphasizing it but i think total connected is all of those things together is what makes you you know a person which what makes you and the self yeah, sort of and like, it from that isn't that thinking about the brain as being all that's there and the patterns as being all that's there is really about thinking of the brain as a computer, which it's not <clears throat> right. It's not because it's a, not that's a bad analogy <laughs> that people use, right? But that's why a brain in a jar or uploading your consciousness or you know, um, 
silicon brains, you bop, bop, bop. It's not just the sum of its connections. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot that we don't know. And I think like the, you know, the last 10 or 15 years of learning about the microbiome is a really good analogy for um, how much we don't know about the way that the body works as a system mm-hmm. and gives rise to our experiences and the various nuances. Like I remember reading about a study, um, this is a mouse study. So like, I know that that's not mm-hmm. everything, but they showed that mice with different gut biomes, some of them were braver than others. And like, yep. that was the difference. And so like how much yogurt you eat and what that does to your gut can change your feelings. Like mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. just, that's but- not the brain is a computer. This is, and and it's also because like we have these we have such a limited understanding of the entirety of personhood that it's easier to understand if we reduce it down to the idea of a computer. And then it's like, well, if the brain is a computer, then when computers get smart, they will be intelligent and have personhood. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, that is not necessary. Like mm-hmm. you, by you get stuck in a loop of ever of it just keeps getting simpler and simpler. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think what, what you're referencing is is the, I think they now call it the enteric nervous system, right? Which is in your, yeah. in your gut. And, you know, there's, <clears throat> you know, more neurons there than in your brain or, you know, whatever it is. And like, yeah, I mean, we're, there's these things that we're learning more about of like, oh, wait, it's not just like central nervous system, peripheral nervous system, you know, and then, you know, that's how we understand knowledge, information, and language. It's like, no, it's it's in all of your body. It's kind of like for <clears throat> I remember all the research in the '90s of the brain. Right, the '90s was like the, the the decade of the brain, and of course, we made so many advancements from all the other previous decades. But everyone got really focused on um, you know, it's like everything else, right? People get something comes out, they get really excited about it, and they put all their cards or their eggs in that basket, and then it's like, oh, well, actually, that's not quite there. Is one of these things was um uh brain regions so yeah. like you know and like fmri research and then yeah the fmri research and all that stuff and now we know it's like well no language isn't just in broca and wernicke's areas language is in all parts of the brain learning and memory is not just in the hippocampus and the subcortical region and the basal ganglia it's also in the cerebellum, you know, and which is responsible for movement, and, you know, all these yeah. other things. And it's it's a lot like sequencing the genome. And then we discover mm-hmm. that it's not just the genome, it's epigenetics, right. it's what's expressed. So I, I guess, you know, in talking about all of these different ways in which, you know, we're, we're understanding more things about, you know, the brain and the genome and, you know, gut microbiome and all these things, we're understanding more about what does it mean to be human and how things are connected and you know, and then we're going to get the updates for that kind of stuff as well. I just, I'm curious here. <laughs> um, I guess it's a, <laughs> there's something about, you know, fiction or sci-fi that, you know, you're, you're able to, to talk about these things in a way where it's like, you know, it's not real. Right. And you can talk about some of these themes. Um, I always think about people, <laughs> People really gave a lot of shit about uh, um, Prometheus and uh, Alien Covenant. And I love those films. I love those films. Because to me, it's like it's like an atheist Genesis story. You know what I mean? Like, it's great, right? It's yeah. fantastic. Like, I think it's, it's, it's really cool. Um, there's, there's other films um, that do this stuff. And 
and I wonder, there's different ideas about there, but I mean, we, you can just say with that uh, specifically, like, wh- what do you make about these ideas about kind of big picture of our origins and who we are and what it means to live and like all of these things? Like, you know, you can say if you, you can, <laughs> you can. You can tell me which side you fall on. If we're a big Prometheus fan or not, but I, I haven't it. seen it. So you seen it. I've no, seen, have I seen all the sci-fi films you haven't seen? You've seen two thousand one: A Space Odyssey, right? You've seen that one. Yes. Oh my God! Are you serious? You're joking. I tried to read the book when I was like twelve years no old, and way. that was a wild mistake. Wow, um, it's my yeah. favorite film. Wow. I have seen a lot. People, you keep, you're like bringing up, I talk about a lot that I have read and seen in the book. (laughs) Oh my God. I can't believe it. There's no way. Okay. Star Wars. You've seen Star Wars. Yes, I've seen Star Wars. But Star Wars isn't sci-fi. Star Wars is fantasy Western set on another planet. Right, right. Um, Wow, you haven't seen is there Interstellar? You would like Interstellar. I don't know if I would. See, that's the thing. Is I, I didn't see Interstellar, I think, because I, um, Really hated Inception. <laughs> uh, totally different, but right. But aren't they both Christopher Nolan? Yeah, I mean, if you yeah. if you buy into the whole thing about Chris Nolan, where he's like he tries to do too much and it's too thoughtful and it's like too idealistic. No, I just I just thought that the logic of in. I mean, I thought Inception was kind of um, self serious, but it was mostly that the logic yeah. didn't work. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think it was because I didn't like that. I didn't see Interstellar, but I've I've listened to podcast episodes that <laughs> describe the movies in great depth. Yeah. Um, not Prometheus, but the other ones. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, for me, it's more like Arrival. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is I don't like being scared, so that's why I haven't seen Prometheus or like okay. even Gravity was like too tense for me. Like I was just like. No, thank that's, you. That's a, that's a terrifying movie, actually. Right? Like, I don't, I don't want to. It's good, but it's terrifying. to experience that. I don't. I like really dislike being scared, and I dislike, especially as I get older, and especially like post pandemic and post parenthood. Mm-hmm. Really, I don't like that tension. No, no, either. I'm with, I'm with you. Um, and I prefer it more in books than in movies. So. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm more of a books person than a movies person in general. Okay. Okay. So okay. Well, the, my whole point was was that <laughs> there's. I mean, Prometheus is really good. I mean, I think that there's because it's trying to show like where do we come from, right? right. Which, which you know, is, is one just like we're trying to have science fill that gap where we like don't have the mythology of religion to yeah. give us that information anymore. Absolutely, science fiction is a different kind of mythology in that way where we don't believe it the way that one would believe religion, but it's giving us different frameworks. It's giving us different Mm -hmm. stories, Mm -hmm. giving us different like ways of feeling about Mm -hmm. that sort of connection. You know, it's not literally true, but it it Mm -hmm. can feel spiritually true. Yeah. I think there's a, I think there's definitely an appetite for that. And I think there's a, you know, I think there's certainly a way to, you know, to tell those types of stories. Um, you know, I think, I think it's, I think it's, it's very, it's very interesting. And I think it is interesting to see other things. Like, obviously there's like the big stuff, like Marvel has some elements of this, obviously Star Trek and Star Wars mm-hmm. have elements of this, of course. Um, I mean, I'm a big Dune fan. So I mean, yeah. D- Dune is, is, is cool to show. It's like the politics of like, you know, space and it's just some, some, no, not just politics, but you know, of like other planets and like other kingdoms and other like kinds of things. And, I think it's interesting to show 
like when I when I watch sci-fi, I I don't. I mean, I like different types for different reasons, but it's always from an Earth perspective. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. like, well, how how good can you be if it if 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 nothing looks like or not nothing, but such minimal like context is from Earth and then brown, branching out where it's like totally foreign, totally yeah. novel. That to me is it's really hard to do. Actually, it's actually yeah, really no, totally. And and but then you also you know in in terms of genre that does also raise the question of like when is it sci-fi or when is it fantasy set in space? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Dune has spaceships, but especially going into, but even in like the, the first book, you know, there are Mm -hmm. witches, there is Mm -hmm. magic. Mm -hmm. Um, Like even, and, and then I don't remember if it's book three or book four that covers like 4,000 years of an eternal emperor sandworms life. Four. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, see, I'm proving my cred. Um, <laughs> I've read them all. I've read all the. Okay. All right. All right. So I was I was 15 and made some bad choices. Um, <laughs> God, those last books. But uh, you know that is is that sci-fi? Yeah. 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 Is that it, based on yeah. science mm-hmm. or is it cool shit set in space? You know. But mm-hmm. I, I I'm not like trying to police genre because mm-hmm. I don't. Like it can be helpful for understanding what a book or movie is trying to do and how to contextualize it, and like, you know, what's what is its version of truth and what are its goals. Mm-hmm. But, um, like, I am interested in science fiction, especially in terms of this book, as um, ways that we extrapolate out the possibilities of science and what we know several steps beyond science. Like a scientist in a journal article will guess like two steps ahead, you know, like if we answer this, then we can ask this question and then the next question. And sci-fi takes it 20 steps ahead, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes in time, sometimes in advancement, or just like, it's all about extrapolating from what is known. And, And in that sense, if you're looking at Dune, like, that's not about playing with the knowledge of science and stretching it out, whether it's 50 years or 3000 years. Um, so that, that's more sci-fi in terms of like an aesthetic rather than um, mm-hmm. an inquisitive project. Mm-hmm. But I do think that like sci-fi is really interesting to me. And the reason that I include so much sci-fi in the book and put it in conversation with the science is because I see them doing the same thing, like trying to mm-hmm. imagine towards the future, trying to imagine other possibilities. Yeah. But sci-fi has fewer constraints in terms of propriety, like mm-hmm. what's appropriate for science, what's going to get funded in science. Mm-hmm. And has narrative tools at its disposal that science doesn't have. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine, and and it's also a different skill set in the mind of the creator, even though there's a lot of back and forth, there's a lot of science fiction by former scientists, by Mm -hmm. current scientists, um, but you're, you're using different kinds of intelligence and kinds of creativity, you know, like when I would ask scientists, like people who work in SETI, what do you think would happen if we found a signal? Like someone told me like, oh, I don't think it would really matter to humans. Whereas Carl Sagan mm-hmm. in contact that he, he basically imagines that it brings about nuclear disarmament and like massive spiritual revolutions on earth. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because it's, and I don't know who's right, but I think that it's a different way of thinking through the possibilities. Is it based on evidence or is it based on imagination and like a, a sort of deep intuition of human nature? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I remember, I, I like, I mean, I like sci-fi and I like fantasy. I like that stuff because it's, it's a different way of trying to understand things. And you're right, you don't have the limits and the confines that, you know, maybe other genres would have. You, so I like that you mentioned it a lot in the book. And, um, but you do bring up, you know, SETI and making contact with other, you know, life forms and things like that, which, you know, you can talk about that and kind of like you're saying, if we make contact, but there's this, I mean, again, I I don't, I don't know how deep you want to get into it. We don't have to go (laughs) too far down the rabbit hole here, but I mean, there are people that are even more so in the past five years, very convinced about stuff from area 51 and Mm -hmm. unidentified objects and all these things. Um, you talk about that less so in the book. What, but I, I talk guess, about that zero in the book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's I'm, it's because it's a totally it, different thing to it me. Feel, yeah, it feels it feels. It, I don't know. It, it feels different. Yes, it feels it's, different. It's 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 totally unrelated. And if people are interested in that, Sarah Scholes has a fantastic book about the cultural mythology mm-hmm. of UFOs. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean. It's it's come up in interviews before, so the way that I have sort of figured out how to talk about it, because I have no research experience in it, I'm not particularly interested mm-hmm. in it, I don't mind talking about it, but it does come up because they're both about aliens, but A, the idea of Area 51, UFOs, UAPs, all of that, um, it's not a scientific it's totally separate from astrobiology and SETI, like completely separate. Um, it's a military and political and governmental situation. And, you know, someone someone else who was interviewing me was like, well, but you know, these, these Navy pilots have seen things that they can't explain. And I was like, yes, they have. And we have this cultural myth that fills in that blank. We have, a, a you know, it's it's like... It's like a Rorschach test. And we have, we're like, oh, that looks like a bird. Oh, that looks like an alien. Because I know stories that these unexplained phenomena are aliens, right? And so it's like, oh, it must be aliens. There's nothing to pro- to connect it to aliens other than this cultural legacy going back to the 50s and, and UFOs and all of that. Um, I think, you know... There's nothing that tells us this is aliens rather than secret military technology, rather than sensor blips, rather than... I'm not saying that it's explained, but we jump to aliens because we have that story in our culture. Um, Just like if we were still a more sort of unifiedly religious culture, we would say it was angels. Like, in a second, why doesn't anyone think that it's angels? Mm -hmm. Because that's not the story that we tell. That's not the myth. It's it's really cultural mythology. Um, But it's scientifically, and even in terms of sci-fi, I think very, very separate. Mm -hmm. Um, No one who works in SETI is... uh, thinks that it's aliens or mm-hmm. is like, it, it's just a different set of questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, no. The only reason I bring it up is because I think the distinction you're making here is important. I think a lot yeah. of people will walk away with that and be like, Oh yeah, they're making 
contact with people that have already been here. And it's like, no, I think they're pretty different. I think one is science. One is <laughs> something military. Else. Yeah, it's yeah. something else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's. I I think you know the the Chinese balloon thing has really revealed um, how much uh, you know weird shit everyone's putting in everyone else's airspace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I find I, it much more. And this is just me, but I find it much easier to believe that the military has weird technology than the military has aliens. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, again, I mean, I've, I, I know people that. I mean, I think it's interesting. I think it's not yeah. really interesting, but for me, I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very similar. Is yeah, I mean, I'm not really convinced. I'm not it's really. Yeah, and it's just like it feels like a totally different domain to me. Like just because it's also about aliens, I'm like, okay, it's just not mm -hmm. it's not my thing. Just mm -hmm. like, you know, I, I have a friend who's really into UFO and UAP mm -hmm. and all that mm -hmm. stuff. And I do not think she cares about like detecting biosignatures in exoplanet atmospheres. Whereas I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. yeah we're gonna that, get some cool spectra. You know, <laughs> right, like right, it's right, just right. it's um Yeah, that, that's that, yeah. that's the same way for me. When we when we start learning more about you know our universe and and other things and like the um what was the name of the the thing that went out and took all the pictures um JWST yeah yeah I mean I I was I mean I, I was I was thinking about that for weeks afterwards I mean I was yeah. so excited about it um you know because I guess that's that's I don't know it's more real it's just well, tangible it's, it's, it's different people are you know for some people the fact that there are these unexplained phenomena right with like here. That's really exciting and really interesting. Um, it you know, different people are interested in different things. You know, um, my friend Sabrina Imbler wrote this fantastic book about ocean creatures and was posting on their Instagram like, and so they write about creatures like that's their beat. And they were posting all these like, pictures like on the Instagram ones at, the, uh, at the bottom of the ocean, like yeah, the, all the, sorts the... of weird stuff. And they were posting pictures of like holding bugs. And I was like, Sabrina is a creature person, and looking at these <laughs> pictures and knowing my reaction to the pictures, I am not because I was like, ooh, writing this book made me more interested in biology. It sort of like changed. Gave me new curiosities and new questions, but I was like, no, I'm definitely not a creature person. I do not want to hold that beetle. Um, while they are just like full of awe and wonder mm -hmm. at this bug that just like mm -hmm. really makes me feel bad. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think that like I can love biology, but what I'm interested in is like mm -hmm. how how cells turn food into energy. I think that's fascinating. Um, and different people do not care about space or find space scary. But you and I, it sounds like, find the vastness of space beautiful and moving and inspiring. And so it's like, some people are interested in UFOs, some people are not. And it's, um, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, space is both for me. It's beautiful and yeah. majestic and fascinating and terrifying. Um, Which, of course, are very closely related feelings. <laughs> yes, they are. Yes, they are. <laughs> I just want to ask one thing. I just close the loop, I guess, on the AI yeah. stuff. It's... Um, <laughs> Is um this idea of like you know where where do you think our our future is going with it you know this whole alignment problem um and you know how how do how do we is there a point where it kind of inches ahead of like humans and it starts to be you know m you know more intelligent than us or there's that whole stuff but I guess just generally like there there's the ways in which people have and are talking about AI um and or uh, machine learning but also like. <laughs> I think there's other ways to think about it too, and that people aren't doing. And I, I don't know what where do you fall on this, like where we're at now, and then where we're at a hundred or two hundred years from now with it. 
I mean, I think that what we have seen so far and continue to see is like very good specialist programs, you know, but like chat GPT can't make a picture. Um, the computer that is very good at Jeopardy is not very good at Go. You know, it's like we we, we are not seeing um, sort of, you know, it's very narrow. Whereas what and the robots that can walk and navigate through space can't talk like chat GPT and they're separate programs. And yeah, you could make a robot that could do all of those things, but it would be separate programs living inside the same casing. Whereas what the human brain can do is all of those things. Um, and so I, th I think that these are very interesting scientific projects. I'm more worried about AI as like, a deadening of human creativity. I'm always just like, why can't I have like an AI housekeeper so I can write <laughs> instead right. of AI that writes mediocre recycled shit. And that's what we're seeing with the writer's strike right now. Where like one of the main points yeah. was the writers saying, we need you to promise that you are not going to use AI to write scripts. And mm -hmm. the producer's going, mm, we'll see. Right. And it's like, mm -mm. AI cannot produce novelty. It can produce something that is passable. It can produce something that is familiar. It can produce something that we've seen before in slightly different shapes, but it cannot create something new. And this ironically connects all the way back to the origin of life and the mm -hmm. idea that life is a manifestation of the universe's drive towards novelty and towards complexity and towards creativity that after the big bang, we got, um, particles and then the particles formed atoms then the atoms form molecules and then you get clouds and stars and planets and one of the great mysteries of the universe is that it looks like it is moving towards order instead of towards disorder mm -hmm. why is it not a uniform soup mm -hmm. why are there galaxies with incredibly complex architecture so on earth life is a continuation of that mysterious drive towards complexity where life is a way that systems can create complexity and novelty. Mm -hmm. And I think, and this is like, you know, we've been brushing up against spirituality. Like this is mm -hmm. probably the closest I get to spirituality. I believe that human creativity is a continuation of that drive that traces its way all the way back to the big bang, mm -hmm. the creation of something new, something novel, whether that's a beautiful sentence or a painting or a baby or whatever, but that is what AI, what machine learning, what chat GPT cannot do. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that to me is the societal danger, not machine overlords, but um, this sort of um, natural consequence of capitalism that AI is cheap and easy, and that is more important than what is new or beautiful because of capitalism. And that... Um, yeah, the, the writer strike right now is a microcosm of that. Um, the decimation of journalism, the way that the media industry is like falling prey to, um, the drive for endless profit and growth from Wall Street. Like AI is a problem because of capitalism, not because of like the matrix. <laughs> yes, I, I would definitely agree that if we're taking you you can't you can't have the surrogate for the human experience. I just don't no. think that that exists. And I I could at least where we're at now. I I'm again pretty much aligned with you on this. Of 
look, if we want someone that's going to, you know, grade my multiple choice exams, great. Let's yeah. do it. Um, yeah. Or, Use or, it or, to generate, you know, um, code or an, I'm sure there are coders out there who, you know, but to like mm-hmm. generate new, like new versions of things that already exist. Yeah. Use it to generate a resume. Use yeah. it to generate a Great. cover letter Love or, it. you know, um, an Excel spreadsheet mm-hmm. that, you know, mm-hmm. but but it's not novelty. It can't solve new problems. It can't create new, I- come up with new ideas. Um, and if we start using it to sub in for that, mm-hmm. then we are really um, deadening ourselves. Yeah, I mean, we're we're going to, we're going to be like all the people at the end of Wally. Is that another film you haven't seen? Have you seen Wally? <laughs> no, I've seen Wally. Okay, I've seen okay, Wally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Great. That seems, in a lot of ways, it seems pretty chill. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I think like it's the idea of like we need to. I think it's we don't want to get into to be complacent. To, yeah, we have to create and make art and write good novels and make good films and like all of but these the, things. Like that's important. The problem isn't that artists want to use chat GPT. It's the people who have the money want to use it. And then it makes it so that it's not possible to live a sustainable, like we already in America have a really bad problem where there's like art has to be a commodity, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. that there's not in government investment in the arts near, you know, the way that there is more in other countries. And then when you start making it not even possible to have a job Mm -hmm. as an artist, um, you're just really depriving society and humanity of really crucial things, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm happy to float in my easy chair recliner while a robot go does other stuff, but that's so that I can think creative thoughts, you right. know, like right. the limit on my creativity is money and childcare. <laughs> right. 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 right <laughs> and not right, that right. I want AI taking care of my child, but, um, we're just solving the wrong problems because the people with money and power are more concerned about money and power than the stuff that's not as quantifiable. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree with you there. I I definitely think that's I think that's what we're seeing. And you know, I think it's you know, we're gonna we're gonna stumble along and try and figure it out of, of sorts, but it'll be interesting to see, you know, kind of where it goes. Yeah. The last question I have for you is uh <laughs> you, you you start the the the, the book and, and kind of throughout, which is really uh wonderful, is you know, I think you say somewhere that you don't want the answers, you just like asking all the really mm-hmm. big questions because it's yeah. fun. And I, I totally yeah. agree with that. I totally agree with that. Um so again, kind of along these lines, you know, where do you see the future of like wonder and awe and imagination and curiosity and creativity, all these things? Um, where does all that kind of sit for thinking about or asking these questions about all these possibilities of life? That's a really big question. Um, It's weird. You know, we, I just went on this rant about capitalism and creativity, but science faces the same sort of problems. Mm -hmm. Like SETI hasn't been funded by the government since like the early nineties and it's just starting to sneak in there now. Um, So SETI research wasn't funded by the government, but now there's so much focus on biosignatures and the search for life on other worlds that framing said, it's a question of framing. If you can frame SETI research as the search for techno signatures, it looks like you can start to get federal funding. It's like starting to loosen up a little. Um, But 
so much of what questions can be asked in science comes down to funding and can you get a grant to run your lab for three years asking these questions? Um, so we're in a weird position where a lot of this is being funded not by the government and not by university and institutions, but like by tech billionaires, mm-hmm. um, which ironically is like a parallel to where a lot of problems in media have been coming, where like you get a generous rich person who wants to start a publication. And then when they change their mind, that publication is gone. Um, and it's, you know, I don't know. Sorry, you've got me really in the mindset of of thinking about how capitalism just really is. It's such a problem for both scientific inquiry and creativity because neither creates obvious profit. Mm. Therefore, the acquisition of knowledge and the creation of beauty and the nurturing of awe and curiosity. And that's not something that generates profits. It generates other benefits. And um, as a society, we really need to commit to more of a mindset of you know, holistic benefits and it's the same thing as like caring for other people, you know, does it benefit me to pay higher taxes? Does it benefit me to have some of my money go towards trying to understand the cosmos or trying to write a beautiful symphony? Like, I don't know. It's, it's, it, it all comes back to like a generosity of spirit that American politics really deadens but i think um the arts and science nurture but they still require money to happen yeah I, yes yes I, I i i definitely see where where your kind of you know uh, mind is here and I, <laughs> I, I i agree i think there needs to be like something like i'm not saying that this is the standard or anything like that i i, I mean i think you could find other examples it's just the one that pops in my head is you know kind of how like the Greeks had things really kind of, you know, reversed, which it was, there was an emphasis on, um, you know, philosophy and, you know, arts and humanities. And there's all of these things that they really put kind of at the top. Obviously there is many problems with that period of history. I know. It's like, who got to be a philosopher? So many, so many issues. Um, so like, I, I, was that only sustainable because you have right? That's that's the question. Slavery right? keeping the wheels turning. I don't right. know. I, right. I don't know anything. You know. Don't don't don't. I think that there's my 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 ignorant answer would be somebody <laughs> somebody in this space would say it's complicated. Um, right. But, but but my point is is that that we have you know just a modern 21st century of that where you know more people have if they want to accessibility to do that in a, in a really nice you know diverse way. Yeah, like where we 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 do put emphasis and value on all of these things where it's not about does it make money or does it not, that we can still be able to do that because we see it as important for us as as a humanity to show when you make good art, um, that has a lot of really massive benefits, whether it's a novel or nonfiction book or you know, piece of music or a really good film. And you know, I think it has to you know, I think like in any space, you're going to have to have people that really push against it. Um, you know, I know maybe you're not a big fan of Chris Nolan, but, um, or at least maybe you don't like Inception. I'll put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I'll give him a lot of credit for saying like, look, we still have to do 
films in theaters and that's yeah. important and he's not the only one doing that there's no plenty yeah, of yeah. and i i think like he he is i really respect him as as an artist that he has like a strong artistic vision mm-hmm. and it's funny because it like it it in some ways, like I'm, you know, I'm thinking about it in terms of capitalism and it's like, how, like, are we going to be able to see the intrinsic value of the arts when we can't even see the intrinsic value of making sure that children are not hungry? Yeah. 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 That's one thought I'm having. Mm-hmm. But another is bringing it back to sci fi and the visions of these possibilities that sci fi provides. Mm-hmm. One of them is Star Trek. Star Trek takes place in a post war, post poverty socialist utopia, mm-hmm. but the camera is rarely on earth. Mm -hmm. I really wonder what the arts are like on the earth of Star Trek while some people are off seeking knowledge, Mm -hmm. seeking new worlds and new civilizations, right? There's money for that, this frivolity. It's rarely military. Um, It must be really nice to be a novelist in the earth of, of Star Trek as well, because you can be. Um, I think they may have abolished money. I don't totally. I'm not. I'm not a super. Not a big trekking. So right. I'm not. Um, I'll have to. I'll have to ask my friend Molly, who's my trek expert. But I, <laughs> you know, it's like things are real chill on Earth there. Mm-hmm. Um, and Star Trek, in a lot of ways, is meant to be a kind of propaganda for that kind of future, mm-hmm. um, for that knowledge seeking pacifism like it's it, there's socialism there mm-hmm. um another one that comes to mind is the book star maker by olaf stapleton which is one of my favorite discoveries that i made not that people don't know about this book but personal discoveries that i made doing my research where um it's known now as the origin of the idea of dyson spheres it's where freeman dyson got the idea for dyson spheres which are these big spheres or swarms of satellites around a star so that a super advanced civilization can get all of the power from the star. Um, And so I was like, okay, I should go read the book that Dyson Spheres are from, expecting it to be a book about Dyson Spheres. But Dyson Spheres get like half a sentence of mention. And instead, it's this 1937 novel written by an English author that is explicitly anti-fascist. In the prologue, he talks about the rise of fascism. And in the book, he talks about how all of these worlds, because it, it covers like the entirety of uh, cosmic history, uh, on all of these worlds, there comes a moment when um, there's like this challenge, this turning point that every planet faces that is about choosing between fear and self-protection and um, sort of conformity versus this expansive hope and, um, you know, self, uh, ide- self-realization, mm. both for the entire planet and for individuals, which again resonates for me with the idea of um, shadowed worlds in A Wrinkle in Time choosing, and, and the way that the dark world is envisioned in A Wrinkle in Time, which is conformity um, and, you know, just all the kids bouncing balls at the same time. and But it's because of this great evil that has taken away both their pain and their choice for um, individuality. So I, I find a lot of um, beacons in sci-fi because it's not just people imagining, you know, what would a, a faster than light travel be like? It's also imagining like what future choices could we make helped by technology helped by a deeper understanding of the cosmos. Um, and then what would that open up for us mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in terms of exploration and discovery? Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely agree. I think there's a lot of, a lot of things we can experiment there. Well, the, the book is <laughs> called uh, uh, The Possibility of Life, Science, Imagination, Our Quest for Kinship in the Cosmos. Uh, it's out everywhere now. Yeah. And, uh, this is uh, through, where is this from? H- Hanover Square Press. Nice. Um, where can people find you, whether online or anywhere else? Where's the best place to get at you? Yeah, um, my website has links to everything. So that's probably the easiest. It's just jamiegreen.net, J-A-I-M-E. Mm-hmm. Everything is spelled weird, but I'm on I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram, both probably too much. Um, but Elon Musk is trying to help that. She's trying to help fix that addiction for me. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, great. No. <laughs> I had to take one less. It's like, if I haven't been weird enough, it's like, hmm. But, no, that's great. I, I, uh, I really appreciate you uh, coming on here uh, and talking about your wonderful book. And thank you. having just such a really good conversation about all these really cool ideas. Um, I really enjoy this kind of stuff and, and, and making it really conversational. So it's been such just a blast. uh, Thank you. No, I've had a great time. Alrighty. All right. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks.